Aloha, and welcome to the Word of Hope with Ralph Moore, pastor of Hope Chapel Kaneohe. Hope Chapel exists to grow ordinary people into faithful, productive followers of Jesus Christ, equipping them through Bible teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. Today, Pastor Ralph brings part two of Raising Your Shield of Faith. We're still in the book of Ephesians. And now, here's Pastor Ralph. Our church has been doing a a series of teaching about the struggles that we go through in life and the difficulties that we face and how to overcome them. And the scripture very clearly says that the things that we face, even the, the, the antagonisms of other people, are not something that's caused by other people, but it's caused by the fact that we live in a spiritual universe. And we're thinking about who's, who's coming at us with thoughts of depression or thoughts of worthlessness or fears and anxieties that are beyond reason. Who's causing someone to suddenly become antagonized toward you and, 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 and you, there's no real justification for it and you don't know anything you can do to put the thing back together. As we've been in this study, we, we've, it's kind of an interesting little crossroads in my life. We come to a place where the next message in the study talks about our shield of faith and holding up our shield of faith. And, and Jesus becomes a shield of faith to us if... We can have faith in Jesus. And this brings us to Easter and what it's all about. And that first Easter in 1972, when I stopped being a youth pastor and stopped being a kid growing up in church and had to face facts and and deal with, I got to stand here and preach this stuff and I got to face whether it's real or not. I got to figure out, am I going to go back to school and get another career or am I going to continue in the path I'm on? I became convinced of my own, that Jesus rose from the dead, and that I could put my faith and my confidence in him. And so as I speak to you today about Jesus Christ being the shield of faith, I speak to you as a person who has intellectually and emotionally come to a place where I I believe in what I'm talking about. I've, I've vested my life in this. But I also speak to you as a person who has experienced the grace of God. And the things that I want to talk to you about are, 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 are truths that I found to be real, not just because I read them in the Bible, but because at times of crisis in my life, and, and, and I started to freak out and I started to lose it, then I got a hold of myself and I began to hold up the shield of faith. And it began to put out the attack of the enemy. It snuffed out the thing that was meant to destroy me. Am I making sense? Well, I want you to just look at these scriptures, and, and, and we'll go quite quickly from here. The first of them says that Jesus can shield you from guilt, and I inserted the word true, because we talk so often about false guilt, and, and, and guilt that's not really there. But the, the Bible tells us that we all rebelled against God, and, and decided to do our own thing. We dishonored God, and so th- that's the definition of sin. There's a lot of wrong things we've done. Everybody can say I'm a sinner, but the real root of it is that we said, I want to be like God. We did the thing that Lucifer did. I want to sit on God's throne in my own life. And the scripture puts it this way. All of us have strayed away like sheep. We've left God's paths to follow our own. And yet the Lord laid on him the guilt and sins of us all. We all did our own thing. We all rebelled against God. But God the Father had intention when he sent Jesus into this earth. And that intention was that he would 
take upon himself our guilt and our shame. And in his dying, he would cancel the debt that was there against us and we would be free. In some ways, you might think of it as simple as you went out to dinner with another person and they said, I'll cover it. Jesus covered us with his death. He, he paid the price for us. I can remember when I was 17 years old, I was still young enough that when you went to traffic court, your mom had to go with you. And uh, I had already had the, the unique pleasure of, of visiting a psychiatrist uh, who wanted to discuss my driving habits with me. And the state of Oregon was kind enough to pay the man for the appointment. And uh, I saw the report. He wrote that I was distracted when I was driving, easily distracted. And that's the reason that I got four tickets in the first seven months of my driving career. But he wasn't there the day that I was on the Burnside Bridge. If you know Portland, Oregon, there's a river that bisects the town, a wide river. And there are something like 11 bridges now over the the, the river to, to make the city operate. And the Burnside Bridge was one of those when a ship went through that it was the, the, the gates of the bridge would open like this. And so everybody in traffic would be stopped for six or seven minutes, whatever it took. And it was always presented a challenge to young people and their hot rods. And there I was, uh, right the first in line. And next to me, I had a 1948 Plymouth Flathead 6. My dad made sure I had a car that wouldn't go too fast. And next to me was a guy in a 50 Ford flathead V8. And there was really no hope for me in my car. But he was there and he looks over and he starts goosing his engine. And, and then the, the bridge comes down and the little thing that looks like the railroad crossing comes up. And we are off to the races. And he was so much faster than me that the policeman never saw him. He only saw me speeding. <laughs> Which is really good for me because then you don't get a ticket for racing. You only get one for speeding. And I got it for speeding. My, my speedometer happened to be broken. The policeman didn't see the other car. In my mind, I'm off the hook here. Speedometer broken, sir. I just didn't know how fast I was going. I go to court with that and you know what that'll get you. And uh, I got in there in the morning. And, and if, you're, if you're under 18 in Oregon at that time and you go to traffic court, uh, you you, you got to say not guilty because if you say guilty, they're just going to take away your license. If you say not guilty, they treat you like an adult and at the end of the day, they fine you. And and I couldn't afford to lose my license because I had a job. And and so I go in there with my little argument about my, my speedometer being broken. And already I got the cop mad at me in the morning because when I said not guilty, he had to stay the rest of the day till my thing came up again. And and, uh, and, and that had caused us to have some words between each other at the soda machine. And, and then he kind of understood where I was coming from. And I get there and a judge asked me why I was doing what I was doing. I said, well, my speedometer was broken. Well, is it fixed? And I go, yeah, it's fixed. And he goes, who fixed it? Where's the receipt? And I go, my dad fixed it. What is your dad? Some kind of miracle worker? And that gets about five foot two of Irish temper standing next to me going off. You said something cynical about my husband. And she goes, <laughs> and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I'll never go to college. I'll be in jail for the whole rest of my life. What am I going to do? And, and, and the next thing you know, there was an attorney there for the city. And when you say not guilty, the attorney has to get involved. And the policeman and the attorney start standing there talking to each other. And the policeman makes a plea for mercy on my behalf. And I got out of there paying the lowest fine in the history. I got, I got out for $8.
Now, this is a long time ago. Traffic fine should have been about 50. The only thing the policeman could have done that would have been any better would be what? Pay the fine. Pay the fine. Had he paid the fine, he would have acted out what Jesus did for us on the cross that day. And when you're feeling guilty and you've blown it and there's something terribly wrong in your life, you can come to the Lord for forgiveness and his grace will be there for you because Jesus already paid the fine for you. Well, along the way, the scripture goes on and actually this is the verse before, a couple of verses before in Isaiah 53, verse 3. Isaiah 53 is a very interesting chapter, by the way. About 600 years before Jesus, it describes a person who comes along and who is, has a hard scrabble life as a young person, is rejected by people, and yet somehow becomes a leader amongst people, and then everybody turns against him, and they kill him. And then after dying, he comes back to life in this prophecy, and he gains far more followers in his resurrected life than he ever had in the, in, in the natural life. And, and you see this, this amazing picture of Jesus. There's a similar one in Psalm 22 that was written a thousand years before Jesus, but we'll talk about that later. It says here, he was despised and rejected. He was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with bitterest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way when he went by. He was despised and we didn't care. Jesus can shield you from re rejection. Why? Well, the book of Hebrews says that he is like a high priest in heaven. And when we pray to him, he's been through everything we've ever been through. You know, I don't know how you see yourself. But I know that I, I get away from standing behind this microphone. I get to be a terribly shy individual. And I know that has its roots in being the little runt of the class and, and, and the last kid picked for sports eternally. It comes from people making fun of my fangs and my family couldn't afford to put me in braces. It comes from all of those things that, that cause you to feel insecure and insignificant and, and like somehow other people have a leg up on you. And, 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 and Jesus can be the shield for us from that when that threatens to defeat us because he's been there, he understands, and he'll respond to us. Jesus can shield you from sorrow. It says in Isaiah 53, 4, that it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God for his own sins. Jesus carried a certain grief as you read the stories in the New Testament for the world and, and, the, and the pain of the world, the sorrow of the world. He had compassion on people. And that same compassion extends to you in a time of sorrow, in a time of loss. In a time when somebody passes away in your life. In a time when somebody decides to, to dump you for another person. In a time when you have a, a, a great job and a great career. And like my friend had happened to him three days ago. You walk into work that day and they say it's all over. There's a layoff. We're taking out you know, 12,000 people nationwide and your, your name is on the list. And there's loss and there's sorrow. But Jesus is acquainted with sorrow and he's there to shield you from it and to, to give you solace and to see you through it. He can shield you from depression and sickness. It says that he was wounded and crushed for our sins. He was beaten that we might have peace, peace of heart, peace of mind. Above all, protect your heart, for in it is the wellspring of life. Anxiety, 
fear that just is unrelenting and it's rooted in nothing. An attack from the enemy. I've been there. I know. Depression. Something that's gone wrong, something that you regret, something that just begins to get a hold of you and, and you never, ever, ever see the sunshine, no matter how bright it is outside. Sickness. Somebody came to me Friday night and there's this young girl from Japan that they've been praying for and, and, and she's been flirting with Christianity for five years. She developed cancer, serious cancer. In this little tiny congregation, they meet in a house, prayed for her, and God healed her. And now she's really, really scratching her head, trying to figure out which end is up. God does this. He heals. He heals. He can heal our depression. He can heal our broken body. The scripture makes quite a big deal about the fact that Jesus was beaten and that he was bruised and that he was, his, his, his limbs were punctured. And it says that somehow that, that as, as that happened, as Satan attacked him in that way, it gave Jesus power to roll back the curse of sin in the areas of, of, of these kinds of defeats in our own life. And Jesus is there when we call on him to shield us from these things by answering our prayers. And lastly, and this is all the way in the New Testament in 2 Corinthians, it says, you know how full of love and kindness our Lord Jesus Christ was. Though he was very rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty he could make you rich. You know, the New Testament makes a big deal about Jesus being the, the, the king of the universe. Him being the, the person with all power and all glory and all resource and that he laid it all aside and, and was, was born in a manger. You know, we, we get all off at Christmas time on singing Away in a Manger and, and Little Town of Bethlehem and all of that. And, and when you really stop and think about it, it's not a very pretty picture. To be, to be born in a stable is the equivalent of being born in a gas station today. To be laid in a manger as a baby and that be your crib is the equivalent of being laid in a and, and I, I've been saying a lube rack, but not really one of those, one of those bins where they clean parts and they, they put solvent over greasy things. I mean, what was a manger? A manger is a, a place where animals feed. And you put oats or grain or whatever it is there and the animals slobber all over the stuff while they're eating it. And, and that becomes the, the, the bed for the little baby. He was born into poverty. You know, the Bible doesn't tell us much about the early life of Jesus and a lot of what you've heard or, or, or even read about is nonsensical. It's as goofy as the Da Vinci Code. In this business about Jesus making little birds out of mud and then they would fly and entertaining his friends and stuff like that. There's no, there's no ground for it. There's nothing. But as you look at the early life of Jesus, you, you, you do get a hint here and there. You know that Joseph, his stepfather, was around until he was 12 years old. After that, you hear nothing of the man. You know, he was around enough to, Jesus had four half-brothers, but no more of Joseph. And It appears very much that Jesus had a, a, a mom who had to raise him as a single parent. Where we've been, he's been. There's one place where he, he speaks of himself and he says that he has no place to lay his head. There's no place that Jesus calls home. He's constantly traveling. He's camping. He's become poor for our sake. 
The scripture in Psalm 22 that I told you about that is, is so amazing because about 800 years before they invented crucifixion, it describes a crucifixion. And as this person is hanging on this cross, dying, gasping his last breath, he's watching people in front of the cross gambling over his clothing. All that he possessed in the world has been taken away from him, and now they're gambling over it. Jesus became poor, the Bible says, so that we could become rich. And, and you know what it really means is? So that we could become supplied. It's talking about material wealth, that, that God would be there to provide the job for you. He would be there to provide that credit line that you need to keep that business of yours afloat. He would be there to help you land that new account. He'd be there to, 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 to do what you need to have happen in your life. He's there for us. Now, what we've talked about is this, that, that we are supposed to hold up the shield of faith in our life. We're supposed to call on God. We're probably supposed to, at times when trouble comes our way, just speak to it and refuse it. Because I believe in God, I'm rejecting this depression. Because I believe in God, I'm choosing to believe that the best is going to happen in this situation. I'm putting my confidence in him. And as we raise the shield of faith, the scripture goes on and says that we'll stand firm. That when the shooting's all over, we'll still be standing. You know, somebody came to me once and said, what do you do when you feel like you really are being attacked spiritually? Well, you're probably being attacked because you're doing something right. Do more of it. Turn this thing away from, from a defensive posture to an aggressive posture. I'm going forward. I'm going to see God's victory. I'm looking for the best in my life. You know, I, I've, I've known the Lord for, I'm older than I look, for 54 years I've been a Christian. And I've read the scripture from one end to the other, I don't know how many times. I'm convinced of this one thing, and, and that is that God means to do right by every one of us. God wants your life to work out well. The Bible uses the word uh, prosper a lot over and over. You know, and you can get off in that and turn it into I'm going to get rich quick or something. It's talking about just a well-roundedness that covers everything in your life. It works. It works. It goes well. The scripture clearly says that we fight an evil adversary. It comes to destroy that. God intends to give that. Our part in the matter is that when he comes, we need to respond in faith. We need to cast our lot with the Lord, if it were. We need to come to a place where we put our confidence in him and we stand in that. And as we do, we're going to find victory. We're going to find success. We're going to find our relationships prospering. It's going to work. Here's the, here's the, the, the gist of the matter. God intends for you to finish well. God intends at the end of your life for you to look back and say, it was worth living. It was good. It was beautiful. This is what Easter is all about, is God sent his son into the world to cancel the curse that was put against us and to make it possible for us to live a life in victory. What do we do? We have to first accept what he did and say, I want that to be workable in my life. After that, you come to a place where you begin to stand in it. And, and you know, you... There, there, there's an idea that some people have that we become Christians and then we just sort of roll over and do nothing and God will do it all for us. 
That, that would be like saying, well, I started my business now. I'll just go in there and sit in the chair every day. No, no, no. I engage life. I engage the Lord in the midst of life. I, I take God at his word. I hold on to the promises of God. Someone writes me a check. I don't say, oh, thank you. Now I have a check and put it in my wallet. I take it to the bank and I cash it. I stand on the word of God. I take the promises of God to the bank spiritually and I cash them and I expect victory in my life. I want us to do something. I'd like you all to close your eyes. We're going to pray in just a moment. And the, the prayer is, is really a prayer that not everybody in this room needs to pray. In fact, most of us have already prayed at this, in this direction at one time or another in our life. This is a prayer that simply says, God, I believe that Jesus died and rose from the dead and that he did it to take away my sorrows, my problems, my guilt. And I accept that act on my behalf. It's really a way of saying, God, I accept your gift of life, your gift of forgiveness, your gift of love. I accept it. You know, there's a scripture in the, in the New Testament that Jesus describes himself as saying, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone would hear my voice and open the door, I'll come into him. How do you, how do you, how do you open the door? You, it's a prayer. You simply invite him in. And so I want to lead you in a prayer that says, I'm inviting you into my life, Lord. All the, all the good that you intend, I want. I invite you into my life. And if it's your desire to pray that way with me, we're going to pray in about 40 seconds. But between now and then, I want you to have just done something. I, I don't want this just to be a head trip. And so I want you to, to just tell me we're going to pray together. I'll pray out loud. You pray silently. I don't want to embarrass you, make you feel shame. You pray silently. And, but if you're going to pray with me, I want you to look at me right now. That's our signal that we're praying together. I see you two guys looking at me, and you, ma'am. Who else? And you over here, a young man. And you in the red sweater. Who else? See, in the way in the back, about six or seven people looking up at me. Who else? You want to invite the Lord in your life. And you, sir? Good. And you, ma'am? Good. In the center section, I see you. Who else? And you? Okay. Who else? A young man way in the back over here. Okay, I saw you before. You want to you invite the Lord in your life? And you, sir? Good. Who else? And you? Very good. And a lady here in a yellow sweater. And someone way in the back row over here. If I didn't see you, wave at me. Okay, great. All right, let's pray. Again, you pray silently, but pray these words. God, I invite you into my life today. I believe that you care about me, that you intend my life to work well, and I want it to work well. And as I contemplate what we've talked about in the scripture today, I, I, I realize I do need a shield of faith. There's, there's a lot that, that, that comes down the pipe that I just simply can't handle. But I realize that the core of it is the fact that I've separated myself from you and I've tried to run this show by myself. And so today I'm humbling myself and I'm coming before you to surrender my heart and my life to you. God, I want to be your person. I want to live the life you have laid out for me. And Lord, I'm not asking to live a religious life. I'm not asking to, to live a cloistered life. I'm asking to live a full life and an expansive life. 
a life that pays off, and I'm expecting that. And, and, and so I invite you to cause whatever happened on that cross that day and in that resurrection to begin to be something that takes effect in my life, that the miracle of salvation comes to, to pass in my life, that I have a relationship with you and that I'll be in a position where I can call on you and that I can hold up the shield of faith and I can stand firm against the strategies and the wiles and the tricks of the enemy. God, I'm expecting victory in my life. My prayer is that you would teach me about yourself. I have friends that know you, that you would be there with us as we talk together about you and that you would guide the conversation. As I get a hold of a Bible and I read it, that you would guide me in that and that I would come to know you and I would come to know you well and fully. Lord, let your way be worked in my life. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. You've been listening to The Word of Hope with Ralph Moore, pastor of Hope Chapel, Kaneohe. 